Hello again, Reality Family. Thanks for joining us for the teaching portion of our online gathering. In the past two months, we've been looking at the portrait of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen uh, the first half of the Gospel and the first half of our study as Jesus has gone up. He's on the upward trajectory where he is going around and healing people and people are getting super excited and following him, flocking towards him as they think he might be this long-awaited king. But halfway through the gospel, we see Jesus say something quite strange. He says that he must suffer and die. And he tells his disciples that if they want to follow him, they need to be ready to do the same. And at that point, there's a lot of confusion and people start to walk away from Jesus as he walks towards Jerusalem. And that leads to the point of uh, antagonism towards Jesus, culminating in his death on the cross. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. And it's this moment where Jesus has totally been left alone. The, the crowds have disowned him and handed him over to be killed. His disciples have all ran away. And his closest disciple, Peter, has d- denied three, Jesus three times. Uh, the, the soldiers are mocking him. And Mark even says that, uh, puts the words on Jesus' lips that he has been left alone by God. He's been forsaken by God. And so he's totally alone on the cross, save for two people. And the first is the centurion, and we looked at his words when we looked at the crucifixion, where he says that truly this man, Jesus, was the Son of God. And we saw how amazing it is that Mark puts those words uh, on his lips, as they're the words from the first sentence of the Gospel of Mark, and we've just been waiting for someone to see Jesus for who he is. But there's a second group of people that are also with Jesus at the foot of the cross. And I I didn't read this as part of the passage when we studied the crucifixion, but I wanted to, because I wanted to save it for today. So Jesus has died. The centurion has said that this man was the son of God. And then it says this, chapter 15, verse 40. It says, there were also women watching from a distance. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember in our study in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is often going towards, he's drawn towards people who are marginalized, who are overlooked, and who are vulnerable or lesser than in society. And part of the reason that Jesus is doing that is because um, in the Gospel of Mark, they're portrayed as people who can see Jesus correctly. They see him not only as the king who's come from heaven, someone on the upward trajectory, but they understand a king who would come and be downwardly mobile to them that would suffer and even die. And women in at this time were also uh, people who were more marginalized and vulnerable even than they are today. So Mark continues on in this pattern by putting these women at the foot of the cross. And in a surprise, it's not the disciples, the male disciples who are there, the ones who take up most of the airspace in the gospel of Mark, but it's these women who are with Jesus at the foot of the cross. And in fact, they've been disciples the whole time. It says in this passage that they've been with Jesus since Galilee, which is where Jesus starts his ministry in the gospel of Mark. And they've been ministering to him and even helped to provide for Jesus. And then they're with him at this uh, vulnerable moment, the most vulnerable moment in his life at the foot of the cross. So Mark is trying to tell us that it's these women actually who are the true disciples uh, of Jesus. And then as we saw last week, they're with Jesus in his burial. And then they're the ones who come to the tomb and they hear this wonderful news from the angel that Jesus is not here. He is alive go tell everyone. And we're expecting this glorious moment because as I said last week in the sermon, that because Jesus is alive, we are offered life, we're offered hope, and we're offered to join in the ministry and mission of Jesus. 
But there's also a verse I left out from last week, and I wanted also to save it for today. Um, so after Jesus has been resurrected, these women have gone to the tomb, and they've heard this good news from the angel. This happens in chapter 16, verse 8. It says, they went out, the women went out and ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone, since they were afraid. Now, these are probably the last words in the Gospel of Mark. If you're reading along in your Bible, you'll probably see uh, some, some note there. In my Bible, it says, some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16 verse 8. And so what scholars believe is that is actually the last verse in the Gospel of Mark. These later, addition, these later verses are actually just additions. And so it's a surprising way to end a gospel. And that's why scholars think that uh, there, is more, there are more verses there. They think that people came along and said, this can't be the way the gospel ends. Maybe Mark didn't have time to finish, so we, we should just add some things on at the end, maybe some more glorious moments uh, there for the disciples and for us. Or uh, maybe we lost that section of the Gospel of Mark. So we'll just rewrite it as to what we know happened in history. But I actually uh, agree, along with the scholarship, I agree that this is a fitting end for the Gospel of Mark because it's a surprising end. And we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Mark, that's one of the things that he wants to do is every character that encounters Jesus is surprised by who Jesus is, is encountering something outside of what they're comfortable with. And that was my encouragement to us from the very beginning is that Jesus wants to do the same thing to us, that he wants to expand our Coleman barbecue version of who he is and what it means that he's the king and he brings the kingdom to a Texas-sized barbecue vision of what that is. And so the same thing is actually happening in this passage and in this section of the resurrection. The women are surprised. The stone is rolled away. They meet an angel. They're told that Jesus is alive. And then they're entrusted with this news, the good news to go and tell. And, and we shouldn't be surprised that women were entrusted with that news. But in that society, women's testimony was not valid. It wasn't legal in court. And so to be, it's, it's very surprising that women are entrusted with the most important news of all time. So it is actually quite a normal response for us to, to, to it's good for us to remember that this would be a very normal response for them. That, that they are, uh, you know, astonished and trembling and afraid. And the response of, of shock is also the response that we are called to continue to have, like I said, when we are confronted by Jesus and the good news that he is the king, that he brings the kingdom of God by walking the downward path towards his death, but also he's the king that's risen, showing that he has conquered the power of sin and death over us, and also the world. And so this is not something um, we're supposed to ever really get used to. Um, we're supposed to, as I said a couple weeks ago, to try to keep it weird in our lives, to be surprised, to allow ourselves to be surprised by the good news in the life and works of Jesus Christ. But the odd ending in the Gospel of Mark also does something else for us. It, it causes us to, to wonder. We wonder what did happen to these women? You know, did they, what did they do with the good news that they were entrusted with? Did they stay stuck in confusion and fear? Or did they continue to be true disciples and go and tell others about what they'd seen and heard? What will they do? You know, will they just chalk it up to um, just this weird experience? Maybe they had some uncooked Passover lamb and say that was just some weird thing that happened and reminisce about it in, uh, in their older days. Or will they relegate it to the realm of private, personal 
spiritual experience as we might be ready to do? Or will they go and tell? Will they spread this good news to the disciples and to the world? And in asking this set of questions, we're also encouraged to turn the mirror on ourselves and ask ourselves the same question. What will we do with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the crucified King? You know, well, well, what will I do? What will, I, will I choose to reject Jesus like we saw the crowds do, like we saw the temple leaders do? Will we run away from him like the disciples did? Will we do nothing, maybe out of you know, fear and astonishment as these women are doing, or out of personal apathy, or as Mark is, is trying to say to us, out of enslavement to the dark forces in the world? Or will we recognize and receive Jesus as the king of heaven who brings the kingdom of heaven? And so these questions encourage us to go back over and look at the gospel of Mark in a new way through the lens of discipleship. And what does it mean to recognize Jesus Christ, the son of God, the crucified king? How can we take this historic news of this Jesus and live it out today, 2000 years later? And so that's what we're going to do in the next couple months. We're actually going to go back and look at some of these stories that we skipped over through the lens of discipleship and ask what it means for us to follow this Jesus that we've seen today. And so we're going to start that by going to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at a a very quick passage, uh, a very familiar passage in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, and it gives us a really great definition of what it means to be disciples, to follow Jesus. So join me in reading Mark chapter 1, verse 16. And he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. So today we're just going to focus on these words of Jesus, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. We're going to take each section and and just kind of walk through it slowly together to understand what it might mean for us today. So the first word that we see here is the word follow. And the first thing that I'd like us to notice about this word is that it's an action word. We might think of the first thing that we need to do in response to Jesus is to believe. And of course, it does say that in the Bible, but that's not what Jesus says here. He doesn't say believe in me. He asks them to take action, to follow. And action is not just be- action and not just belief is something that's modeled by Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Um, Jesus often doesn't tell people here. He won't tell people. He's very hesitant to tell people who he is. And he's very hesitant for them to use their words to describe him, to use any kind of labels to describe him. Because as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, sometimes they only have a Coleman barbecue idea of what the Messiah means. And Jesus is actually trying to give them a much bigger and more beautiful picture. And so he doesn't use words very often. Instead, he goes and he shows them. Mark has him out on the road doing things to show us that he is the king. The theological term for this is enacted Christology. Enacted Christology, that Jesus is showing us that he is the Christ by what he does. He's living it out in front of the disciples and in front of us. And the disciples also take this invitation to follow Jesus as an action word. They immediately leave their boats, they leave their jobs, they leave their families and they start to walk with Jesus to follow him. 
So following Jesus is, is not in the gospel of Mark, just having your mental picture of who Jesus is balloon from a Coleman barbecue to Texas sized picture of who Jesus is so that we grow in knowledge. It's about life change and orientation and getting on the path with Jesus, the path of downward mobility and the path of following him. One commentator that I read this week put this beautifully. He said, only as Jesus is followed, can he be known. Only as Jesus is followed, can he be truly known. So that's the word follow. That's why Jesus calls us to follow. And this word follow is actually two Greek words uh, in, in the original language. And the first word can be translated as the invitation to come, come. And the second is to get behind. It's an invitation for us to follow is an invitation to come and get behind Jesus. And if you remember back to Dan, uh, Dan's sermon from Grace Toronto on Mark 8, he did a great job of explaining this, where Jesus tells Peter to, he says, get behind me, Satan. He is condemning him, but he's also inviting him back to get in his position, not out in front of Jesus, but as a follower of Jesus. And it's the same thing that Jesus is saying here. He's inviting us to come underneath him, to come behind him and learn who he is by following him. Now, we immediately, I think many of us have a problem with that. We may not have it in uh, word, but we have a problem in practice because of our desire for freedom in our society. And especially a freedom from anything that we might think might stop us from being authentic or being our own person. And I often speak about that. Uh, and one of the things I like to say is that all of us are following somebody, somebody, even if we deny it or we are not sure of who that person is. And I've made that um, uh, statement in, in several different ways. A couple of years ago, I used music. And so we talked about Bob Dylan's song, You Gotta Serve Somebody, where he's just saying, everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, we're all serving someone. Um, but I'm, today I'm going to take a bit of a different approach. So stay with music, but it's going to be a different song, different artist from a different time. And uh, a different problem uh, that we have when we try to live freely, free from everything. And so I want you to listen with me to a song from one of my favorite bands, Fleet Foxes. Um, from, uh, they, they just released a wonderful album last year, Shore. But this is from their earlier catalog. It's a song called Helplessness Blues. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique Like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes Unique in each way you can see And now after some thinking I'd say I'd rather be A functioning cog in some great machinery Serving something on me, but I don't, I don't know what that will be, I'll get back to you someday, soon you will see, what's my name, what's my station, oh just tell me what I should Bow down and be grateful and say 
Thanks for listening. One of my favorite songs. And I encourage you to go listen to the whole thing this afternoon. Um, listen to their whole catalog. It's great. They have a great best of album. But this song is also extremely profound because it tells us something amazing about our world. That the freedom, the freedom we long for and we talk about so much in our world comes with a massive trade-off. They, they call it becoming dizzy. We might use the word anxiety. That you're told that you're this amazing, unique person. They say a snowflake distinct among snowflakes. And uh, we come with this expectation that you are going to do something unique and beautiful and great in the world. But sometimes it comes with no roadmap of how to get there. You're told you're going to change the world and you're a unique person and you should just be who you are called to be. But there's so much confusion about what that is. And if we look at our lives, oftentimes these expectations that we have are here and our actual lives are, are way down here. We're just normal people. And so that leads to what they say in the song, helplessness blues. We feel helpless. And on one hand, we, we want to be free. We long for this kind of freedom that we talk about and to achieve these um, dreams. And we don't want to be hemmed in by anyone or any system telling us what we, what we should be doing. But at the same time, we have this feeling of helplessness, the helplessness blues. And so on one hand, he doesn't want, he says, to lie down to injustice or become a doormat or have men who move in dimly lit hallways determine his future. But on the other hand, he's just longing for someone to come and tell him. He says, what's my name? What's my station? Oh, just tell me what I should do. And Jesus' answer to all of us who struggle with these kinds of feelings, with the helplessness blues, is these words, follow me. To come in behind, but not just anyone, not a system, but to come in behind him. The self-giving God who walks the path of brokenness for you and I. And in the giving of his life, he gave up his freedom so that we could actually learn to be free by following in behind him. That's the path of freedom is to follow Jesus. Let him give you a name. Let him proclaim the name of son and daughter and loved one and friend over you. Let him give you a station by shining a light on what it is that you're called to do, the good works that he's laid out, the Bible says, before the beginning of the time that you can walk into, that you would have a place and a role within the kingdom of God and a relationship following the king. So Jesus says, follow me. And he says, and I will make you into. And the important thing for us to see here is that he, follow me, I will make you into is a recognition that discipleship is both, it both happens in moments and in a process. Discipleship happens in moments and in a process. There are really important moments that happen in the gospel of Mark. It's littered with them. Jesus calls the disciples to follow him. And it's this moment where they're forced, encouraged to make a choice, a life-changing choice. Uh, the paralytic is said, uh, Jesus says to him, take up your mat and walk. It's this invitation in this moment to make a choice. Um, the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God, a very important moment. The angel tells the women, go and tell the disciples the good news, another really important moment in the gospel of Mark. But this passage also shows us that following Jesus is a process where he's shaping us over time. He's making us into something and we're becoming, we're becoming something, someone, something new. 
And the disciples and the, wim- and the women that we saw at the foot of the cross, they may succeed or they may fail in certain moments, but becoming like Jesus, becoming his disciple and following him happens through continually just walking with him throughout time, day by day, wherever he will go, whatever he will say, whatever he will reveal himself to be. And as disciples and as disciple makers, we need to have this same perspective in mind that there are moments in discipleship with Jesus in following him. And it's also a process. I think in Western Christianity, we are a little bit um, obsessed with moments you know, whether it's praying the prayer, when did you pray the prayer? As one author uh, says, he, when people ask you that question, they mean date and time, please. That there's this moment where we prayed a prayer that changed us. Or we create these worship or conference moments, these emotional, intense emotional moments where we just feel really close to God. And we become obsessed with those who can help us experience these moments, people with high giftedness who can make us to feel this way, or people who have a really high budget and we can walk into a situation that makes us experience this intense moment with God. And I think those uh, obsessed with moments oftentimes are younger Christians or more charismatic Christians. But an over-focus on moments, because it's imbalanced, leads to problems. The first is that we could try to manufacture a life of exciting moments. So we go from conference to conference or from worship album to worship album or from church to church seeking those moments. Or maybe if you're more of an introvert like me, from book to book, yes, books can give you those exciting emotional moments. Or from sermon to sermon. And we may end up with in a, in a place of jadedness. You know, I felt the emotions at that time or I prayed the prayer, but I'm still struggling with the same thing. I'm exactly the same person that I am. And, and that can lead to wondering, is this emotional manipulation? You know, and even is God really real? Um, it also could cause us this, this over-focus on moments to wonder about other people's salvation, people who don't experience the moments but might be going over life change through a process. Jenny and I were talking before she did her interview and she pointed this out that some of the people that we've had that have come through Inner Hope that have become a part of our church have struggled with this because people put expectations on them to change in a moment like that. But they are carrying um, you know, many different things and this, the change is happening. Sure, there are some moments, but things are happening slowly over time and, and sometimes they get criticized for that because they're not where we think they should be at some point in time. Or because we've just lost a vision for the process, for what one um, author called a long obedience in the same direction. We, maybe we've lost a vision for character, which is not built at conferences, but just by abiding with Jesus, by listening to experience uh, the Spirit and bearing fruit, a slow process. Or the continued suffering which we've seen in the Gospel of Mark that comes from walking with Jesus on the path of downward mobility. And so that's what happens when we over-focus on moments. We lose out on those things. But the opposite can also be true, especially for those of us, I think, who have been Christians for a longer period of time. Maybe we had some moments in our teens or our 20s that were super meaningful to us and got us on the path of discipleship to Jesus and caused us to be on fire. But now we're a little bit older You know, we're a little bit more settled in our lives and we're just a little more satisfied in our faith. And it's kind of just all about process now. We're pretty comfortable maybe in our faith. It's like an air-conditioned Christianity. And so we're not, we we can lose the, the, that we're expecting big moments to happen. But when we do that, 
uh, one of three things can happen to us. We can lose a vision that God still works in moments where the king, that we can still expect these moments where the kingdom of heaven breaks in and God breaks the plane of nature in, in a, you know, a miraculous way. I was praying with a friend recently and I was convicted of this. We were walking around praying for our neighborhood and he asked me, what does revival look like in this neighborhood? What do you think? And I said, you know, I don't really think about it like that anymore. I just, I pray that every day one, everybody will have somebody in their life that knows and loves and shares Jesus with them. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, that's probably wise. But as I walked away, I was also convicted that I'm missing this um, expectation and just hope, not expectation, but this hope that Jesus would in a, in a beautiful and amazing and miraculous way also break into our neighborhood and change people's lives and focus on him. This focus that my friend has, and I can lose that, lose that focus that God is at work in moments. I've also found in my life that I don't lose the passion for moments, actually. I just lose the passion for them happening in relation to God. I displace the passion for moments onto other things. So the moments of, of great joy now come with my kids, or maybe for you, your grandkids, or with your partner. They come from a, getting a new promotion at work, or a new house. Or for me, last week I talked about this, the Oilers. I love the Oilers. Maybe them winning, finally winning the Stanley Cup is this great moment that my life is geared towards and hoping for. So I don't lose the hope in moments. I just displace it from an expectation that will ever happen with God. And finally, the problem with missing out, only focusing on process and missing out on the moments is that we, we as followers of Jesus might miss the moments where Jesus is actually calling us to a deeper relationship with him, where he might be meeting us in our air-conditioned Christianity and asking us once again to, to follow him. I shared this story once before, but I thought it was appropriate to share it here again. My father-in-law told me of a pastor uh, in a church one time. He, he stood up in front of a church of about 100 people, and he said to them, uh, you know, this is a, I have a special guest that wants to come speak to us today. He's become a very close friend of mine, and so I wanted to, uh, to just have him up here to witness to the power of God in his life. So would you please come on up? And so as people are clapping, this guy walks from the back. Uh, of the audience towards the platform. He's uh, you know, wearing a nice suit. He's well manicured, good looking guy. And he stands up in front of people and he says, five years ago, I came to this church, a broken man. I had $20 in my pocket. Um, I had broken relationships behind me. I had nothing going for me. And I sat here wondering if Jesus had anything for me. And I met him in that moment, in that time. And I, and I felt him calling me as the pastor uh, prayed for the offering to give the $20 that I had in my pocket as a token that I was all in for Jesus. And so um, as an act of obedience and, and of following Jesus, I took that $20 out of my pocket. And as they passed the offering plate in front of me, I put it in to say, I'm all in with you, God. And since that time, I've been meeting up with the pastor regularly. We become good friends and I learned how to follow Jesus I also met my wife and we have kids and, and a new home and my business is doing amazingly well. And so I just wanted to come in front of you and testify that Jesus is real and that he's in my life and uh, he's met me in this amazing moment. And I just want to say thank you to him and thank you to all of you who have supported me. So with that, he sat back down and as the people were clapping and cheering, he took his seat in the back and a woman, old woman from behind leaned over and said, I dare you to do it again. I dare you to do it again. These could be the words uh, to the women at the empty tomb. 
Jesus saying to them, I dare you to do it again. You've been with me my whole life. You've given up so much. You're with me to my death. I know you've left everything to follow me. You stayed with me through everything, but I'm daring you to give it all again, to go and tell them that I live. So what about you and what about I? What, where might Jesus be calling us to follow him anew? We can't miss out on those moments because discipleship is not a spectator sport. It's a partnership of becoming both in the moments and in the process. So Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become, and the last statement is fishers of people. Or if you studied this passage as a kid, fishers of men, you probably heard. And this term comes from the Old Testament prophetic tradition. For example, in Jeremiah, it uses uh, this language as a metaphor, says fishing for and hunting people who have destroyed the land with their sin and idolatry. And so that might help us explain that this is a, you know, a um, prophetic judgment term that why Jesus uses it in the way that he does and, and why he goes about with such urgency in the gospel of Mark. Because he's saying this is happening. The kingdom is breaking into this world and divine judgment is coming down. But the deeply ironic part is that it's not coming down on people who deserve it, whose sin and idolatry continues to stain the land, as Jeremiah might say. But it actually falls on Jesus himself. And so Jesus is changing the metaphor. To be fishers of people means that we gather people not for judgment, but for salvation. That we are to follow him as fishers of men, is to call people to look at Jesus for salvation. And it's to suffer with them and for them, just as Jesus does. But also in the passage that the Old Testament uses to talk about fishers of people, God is always described as the one who's doing the fishing. And so by telling the disciples that he will make them fishers of people. Jesus is both saying that he is God, but he's also inviting the disciples to engage and to partner in God's work. See, God is always widening the circle. He widens it to include us as his disciples, if you follow Jesus, to participate in his work in the world. And as our friends at Bridgetown might say, to uh, apprentice under Jesus is to be with Jesus to become like Jesus, and then to do the things that Jesus did or do the things that Jesus would do if he were you. And so Jesus does that here. He, he invites the fishermen who would understand fishing to become fishers of people. He enters into their world and he draws from their lives and their stories into, to call them into God's story and also to call them to use what they have as fishermen in the kingdom of God. And that's the same thing he does for every single one of us. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, but also to do the things that Jesus would, uh, did and would do if he was you, to capture a vision for what it means to be a mom that is with Jesus, to be an engineer that is someone with Jesus and to engage in the things that he did. And through us, God also wants to widen the circle even further to cast the net out for other people to follow the metaphor and to invite them to follow this king who takes the judgment of the world gone astray and to find liberation from the shame that covers uh, us from the curse, to find a way out of the helplessness blues and hope in the new life of God. So discipleship is this road back to actually what it means to be human in the Bible, this invitation back to be made and remade in the image of God to hear his word of blessing that he says in Genesis that it is good 
to be in relationship with God and his people, and then to be sent back out in partnership with him in to, to show his glory and his creativity to the watching world. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is here. Follow me and I will make you into fishers of people. I want to end uh, on a, a bit of a different note with some art uh, by a Japanese artist, a Christian artist named Soyochi Watanabe, which I think draws on many of these themes and puts them together. Here is uh, something he wrote about his art. He said, in the 1980s, I tried many times to express the essence of the biblical story and my confession through my paintings. This beautiful picture of what it might mean that he is going to do what Jesus would do if he was him. He's trying to express Christ through his art. So he said, after some steps, the first being realistic uh, expression and next paper cut printing, my painting finally became that semi-abstract style which you can see here. Its content is one of simplicity and symbolism, especially the face with no eyes, no nose, and no mouth. And uh, Watanabe's heart in, in painting like this was twofold. He said he wanted to encourage believers of different nationalities to be able to see themselves in the characters of the Bible and as followers of Jesus, to be able to see themselves and others of their own ethnic representation there. And as a Japanese Christian, he sometimes struggled to see himself in the depictions of Jesus and his followers. But he also wanted to allow for each follower of Jesus to see their own face in the encounters with Jesus, to put themselves there with Jesus in those encounters. And he wrote about the passage we talked about today in Mark 1. He said this, When the disciples encountered Jesus by the seaside, they didn't know who he was, but they followed him as he called them. When I encounter Jesus, I don't know who he is, but after following him, I know who he is. In this series, we spent a lot of time trying to bring um, some some uh, features to this face of Jesus. And I'm hoping now that you see more clearly who he is in this abstract face, that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Heaven, the crucified King. And this, uh, this, this part of, of our study of the gospel together and the invitation of today is to, to find your face in the other faces in the painting, to hear these words of Jesus, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. To come and take your place behind Jesus. To let him form you through the highlight moments and the everyday mundane times of life into someone who reflects his light, his glory, and his blessing into the world. Would you close with me in prayer? God, an amazing invitation that you would invite us to come to you, to learn from you, to follow you and to even share you into the world. So we pray that you would um, take this and burn it into our hearts now. For each of us, help us to see our face in these encounters with you. And I ask that as we hear these words, that we would learn what it means to follow you afresh in whatever stage of life we're in, whatever's going on in our lives, that we would once again let go of our nets and follow you. May this be true of of each of us and of our community, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.